that little bit of history, but um, if you'd like to read these stories, that it's been recorded as well. So it's quite an encouraging story. I'm going to read to you two readings. First one's going to be in Daniel chapter three, and then in Colossians chapter one. And we're kicking off today. Um, Kevin and Jared, we're going to be preaching over time from Colossians. So Kevin's kicking that off for us today. And then Sam will be kicking off in Hebrews probably next week. Um, so Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. Footnote here, it says about 27 metres high and 2.7 metres wide. That's a significant structure. And he set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, they are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve any gods, that you do not serve my gods, or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue, rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods 
or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the men who took up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, wasn't that three men that we tied and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. The robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego be cut into pieces and the houses been torn, turned into piles of rubble for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the province of Babylon. At least we know what their names are. <laughs> Colossians 1, 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is producing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all its, its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not, not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints 
in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. May God give us understanding. Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, our God. In Jesus' name. Colossae was an agricultural town in the time of Paul. It was located on the southern bank of the Lycus River in the territory of Phrygia. Is that how you pronounce it? Phrygia? <laughs> Which is actually modern Turkey. It was about 177 kilometres east of Ephesus. At one time, it was a notable city but, but its importance was outstripped by neighbouring cities, Laodicea, located 17 kilometres to the northwest, and Heropolis, located 19 kilometres to the northwest on the other side of the river. It was situated in a region prone to earthquakes, um, and one in the area around AD 61-62 caused severe damage and possibly destroyed the city. Laodicea was also devastated by the same earthquake, but quickly recovered. But it's interesting that the city of Colossae may not have been rebuilt from that time, as there are no references to the city in either Christian or pagan sources after AD 61. <coughs> and it's thought that Paul wrote this letter before the earthquake destroyed the city. Now, a brief overview of the book of Colossians is that the Colossian church was struggling with misinformation given by some of the Jewish community. It was some form of philosophy or false misleading teaching or influence. Now, I want you to imagine that as a young Christian, somebody said to you, because you didn't receive Jesus in this way or in this place, you're not fully a Christian. You didn't really receive God. Your Christianity is not real. How would that make you feel? That's what was said to me by some charismatic people where I grew up. And it rocked me. But I had a confidence that Jesus was in my life. So I, even though I doubted a little, I still continued. Would that shake you? Paul tells them, the Colossians, that they need to remain firm in the teaching that they heard. He affirms that they are already complete, having attained fullness in Christ. And he also assures them of their status before God in Christ, who has secured for them the forgiveness of their sins. He insists that Christ alone is sufficient for their salvation. When the Colossians became Christians, they believed that they had become heirs to the promises of Israel. Paul affirms that they are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. 
He's concerned that this philosophy or teaching might undermine their confidence in the hope. And he's writing to curb this insidious influence and to confirm their faith. It's sort of a shot across the bow, but it's also a booster shot designed to inject greater assurance. The book tells us that the Christians will find completeness only in Christ and that we already have been delivered from the powers and authorities. It's written to help us grasp even more firmly who Christ is and the rich glories of all that God has done in him. And, the, and this letter affirms God's creation has a divine purpose, which is brought to, to fulfilment in and through Christ. It affirms the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ as the fullness of God and as our creator and our redeemer. It also shows us that we must not only be solidly grounded in our faith, but we also must be ethically above reproach. Discerning, confident, grateful and ethical Christians lead lives worthy of the Lord, are pleasing to God and will bear spiritual fruit in a spiritually poor world. Paul intends in this letter to help form this kind of believer. Now, Paul is also writing to demonstrate that Christ is supreme over every human philosophy and tradition. Now, now Paul didn't personally found the church in Colossae. In the three-year ministry in Ephesus, Epaphras had been converted and had carried the, the gospel to Colossae, as we see in verse, verse 7 of chapter 1. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the spirit. Now, I forgot to mention that I don't expect you to, to flip through to all the, um, all the references because there's going to be a lot. We've got a Bible marathon again. That, um, if you just sort of note the references, if you're taking notes, um, at least that'll sort of give you something to look at later. The young church that resulted then became the target of heretical attack, which led to Epaphras' visit to Paul in Rome and ultimately to the writing of the Colossian letter. Paul doesn't explicitly describe the false teaching that he opposes, but the nature of the heresy or heresies must be inferred from statements he made in opposition to false teachers because they were diverse in nature. But, but a little bit of the, of the element that was being told to the, to the Colossians was, is, is about five things. One was ceremonialism, the standing on ceremony. The second one was asceticism or the practice of self-denial in an attempt to draw closer to God. Paul says in, in chapter 2, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch these rules which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use are based merely on, on merely human commands and teachings. 
Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. It may include such disciplines as fasting, also celibacy, wearing simple or uncomfortable clothing, poverty, sleep deprivation, and in extreme forms, flagellation and self-mutilation. That sounds like a human rule that makes you closer to God. In fact, it makes you further away. The next one that he mentions is worship of or with angels. And Colossians 2.18 says, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about the, what, what they have seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. Another one was devaluing the person and work of Christ. And just remember, this is just an overview, so we'll be looking at these a little bit later on. This is implied in Paul's emphasis on the supremacy of Christ in uh, chapter 1, verse 15 to 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Another one was secret knowledge. Paul's emphasis in chapter 2, verse 2, on, on Christ my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So they were struggling with a fair few things. And another one they were struggling with was reliance on human wisdom and tradition. Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Just in those five areas of false teaching, there's a lot there. But Paul is very Christ-centred. And in this letter, he refers to the titles in Greek for Christ 25 times and Lord nine times. So I've just given you a quick overview of Colossians. Now let's get into the letter. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Have you ever opened up a letter from someone whom you didn't recognize and you started reading the letter and then you skip down to the bottom to see who this letter is from, then you come back up into the letter to actually read it? Well, the author of this letter is in no doubt. It was customary at the time to put the writer's name at the, at the beginning of the letter and we see this right at the start. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. It's a pretty good introduction. An apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. This reflects Paul's basic conviction that Christ called and empowered him to carry on a divine task that was entrusted to only a few. In the Old Testament, God appeared to the prophets and sent them out to proclaim the word. But in Paul's case, Jesus appeared to him after his resurrection and sent Paul out to proclaim the gospel. Paul didn't one day decide to go into apostolic ministry, but understood himself to be set apart by God from his mother's womb to carry the gospel to the nations. And we can see this in Galatians 1 verse 15. But when he called, when he who called had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. <laughs> so his, his authority was unique and it came directly from Jesus. But he didn't see himself as set apart for high office from which he could rule the roost. He was assigned a task, not a status. And, you know, we're also assigned a task, not a status. When we're told in Matthew 28, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So we've also been given a task. So that's who the person, that's who the person is who wrote the letter. And he's writing to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Holiness. It has to do with being set apart from the world for God. As God has made Paul his own as Christ's apostle, so God has made the Colossians as his covenant people in Colossae. The word holy or saints was applied to Israel in the Old Testament. Exodus 22:31, you are to be my holy people. Deuteronomy 7:6, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Deuteronomy 14.2, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Again, he says, out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. 
you know, in Deuteronomy alone, that there are five references or reminders or promises to the Israelites that they are God's holy people. But, you know, Paul intentionally includes Gentile Christians as holy people. In Romans 1, 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. That's how the English Standard Version puts it. The NIV puts it, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. 2 Corinthians 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia. Every letter he writes to the churches in the New Testament, he addresses them as God's holy people or as saints. You know, when I was younger, I thought that being holy was a special kind of Christian. So whenever I read that phrase, I would sort of tend to sort of brush over it. You know, the true meaning of being holy was not taught in the church that I grew up in. So I didn't consider myself as holy. Yes, I was a Christian, but just a plain Christian. Nothing special. People like Billy Graham, um, a fellow from our church, Brian Willisdorf, who um, held evangelistic and revival meetings, the missionaries who went to other countries of the world, people who were doing amazing things for God, they were the holy ones. But being holy means that they also belong to the people for whom all the promises in the Bible apply. Did you hear that? If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is your Lord and Saviour, that he purchased your debt of sin, you also belong to the people from whom all biblical promises apply. Promises like, I will never leave you or forsake you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Revelation 3.20, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come and eat, come in and eat with that person and they with me. Romans 15.8, for I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed. 2 Corinthians 1, 18. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no, but the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. 
For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes us, makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Paul calls the Colossians faithful, which is the reason for his thanksgiving. Their faith is unwavering. Their faith is not dependent on social pressures or anything that is impacting their lives. And if you think back to the reading that Warren read in Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego had huge social pressures put on them by King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. But they didn't let this law to bow down to the image of Nebuchadnezzar impact their lives. They had a clear faith in God and they obeyed God's law, not Nebuchadnezzar's law. They said, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Now, that's really putting your faith on the line. But they were secure in the knowledge that God would be glorified because of their faith in him. They were holding fast to the promises God had made to the Israelites if they followed the law of God. Are you secure in the knowledge that God will do what he says? The Colossians are holding fast to Jesus. They've not reached perfection in their faith, but Paul wants to reinforce it and encourage their faith growth and foundation and the knowledge. Just like us, we have not reached perfection in our faith. It's a journey that does not reach perfection until we rise and meet with Jesus when he comes again. Now, I don't read Greek, but there was a note in the, um, in the commentary that I was reading that the Greek text literally reads, in Colossae, in Christ. In other words, these people may reside in Colossae, but more important, they live in Christ. So what does it mean to be in Christ? The first thing it means to be in Christ means to be totally encompassed by him in every facet of our lives. As an example, we might be Armadalians or Ardingites, but the only identity that matters to God is that we are in Christ or Christians. That means that Christ determines everything in our lives. Now, that doesn't mean just Sundays only. This is 24-7. This is a full-on relationship with Jesus. Every part of our lives is to come under Christ. Secondly, to be in Christ means to be exclusively joined to him and to no other. 
In other words, Christians cannot be in ISIS and be in Christ. Christians cannot be in any other God and be in Christ. Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. And you shall not bow to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. In other words, we can't have one foot in the world and one foot in Jesus. It just can't work. Thirdly, to be in Christ means that he determines the behaviour of believers. One cannot be in the world or into magic or drugs, for example, and be in Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.15, Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Okay, the Bible tells us in 1 Peter 5.8, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. So what Peter is saying is being in Christ, he will change your behaviour. He will strengthen your faith. If you stumble with life's temptations and you come back to Jesus, he will restore you and give you strength. Fourthly, to be in Christ means that believers are inseparably joined to him. Paul says in Romans 8, 38, 39, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a promise. Fifthly, to be in Christ means that believers are also joined to a new family where the dividing lines that separate and categorise people have been erased. Paul tells us in Romans 12.5, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of another. Their mutual faith in Christ has created a spiritual kinship that supersedes blood's ties. We're actually talking about this on Thursday night at our, um, our study. You know, we can walk into a church service anywhere in the, in the world and even though there's a sort of like a language barrier, there are certain tunes or certain traditions that we can identify with. Communion, for example, praying. You know, if uh, people sing Amazing Grace, you recognise the tune. 
and we can worship in a different, in, in our culture and our tradition with other people. You try doing that in a secular, non-Christian environment or club. You know, you might be talking rugby, but, you know, really you can't understand what they're saying, so you just go, yeah. <laughs> but when you walk into a church that is following God, there is that bond. Sixth, being in Christ gives Christians their true identity beyond their race, nationality, or clan. Now, a Jew might address a fellow Jew as brothers. But for a devout Jew to call a Gentile brother, many of whom he has never met, I don't think that would happen unless they had the, had, have experienced the life-changing power of Jesus. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Our identity is Jesus. Because the veil was torn in two in the temple, when Jesus died on the cross, we can come to him at any time and freely. Our identity is one who is a brother or sister in Christ means that we can approach God at any time and he will answer. He will listen. He will welcome us. He will teach us and he will comfort us. Unlike the Old Testament Israelites who could only come at certain times and through the priests. So my question to you is this. Do you consider yourself just a plain Christian? Jesus doesn't. God doesn't. God considers us as a holy people, as a people belonging to God. Jesus has called us that that's you and I, to be holy. He's called us to be in him. He's called us to be totally encompassed by him in every facet of our lives. He's called us to be exclusively joined to him and to no other. He's called us to let him be the one who determines our behaviour. He's called us to be inseparably joined to him. And he's called us to be joined to a new family where the dividing lines that separate and categorise people have been erased. He's called us to have a true identity beyond race, nationality or clan in Christ. I would like to encourage you to hear Paul's greeting as if it were written to you. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people at Chapel Street Baptist Church, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God for the, fa the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people.
the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. Are you a plain Christian? I say no way because you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have called each one of us to be your people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Lord, as we go out into our world today, help us to take on your identity. Help us to take on you and live in you, also in Armadale. In Jesus' name, amen.